0: Our Bible reading this morning, uh, for anyone who would like to follow along, is from Matthew chapter 18, uh, starting at verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me, I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now my sermon today is a a request from one of our uh, home Bible study groups. They were having uh, a discussion on uh, a passage about forgiveness and, and we're having quite a robust discussion about forgiveness Uh, In light of, of, I can't remember the exact verse, but one of the verses uh, in the Bible, much like this one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. If we have to forgive to be forgiven, Is that teaching salvation by works? We know that, you know, as as good Protestants, that we're not saved by our good works, that we're saved by grace. That's one of the cornerstones of what our church is founded on. But doesn't that sound a bit like our salvation is based upon what we do? I mean, God won't forgive us if we don't forgive other people. That's what it says. And as you know, the teaching, we all agree in the Protestant church, salvation is by grace received through faith. Now, this isn't an easy tangle to unravel. How can these things go together? And I think the key to making sense of it is the parable of Jesus that I just read out. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. Now, Jesus had been uh, at this point in Matthew 18. He'd been teaching just before that on 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 church discipline, on you know what to do if somebody sinned against somebody else, and and there's there's a whole process to go through. Like first you you confront that person about their sin, and then if they still won't listen to you, then then you go um, then you bring it to the elders, and the elders confront them about their sin, and then if they still won't, you know still won't repent of this and then you bring it before the whole church uh, you know to address their sin and then if they still won't repent then then they're out basically that's that's the end of the process God says uh, you know they're, they're, or Jesus says they're not to be part of the church anymore now in that context though he'd said you know, at any step in that process If your brother or sister who has sinned against you repents of their sin, then you forgive them. Uh, You know, you make it right between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over, he says. But, you know, if you get to the end of the process and they still haven't listened, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now... Peter has, you know, he, he's heard Jesus teaching about this and he's, you know, Jesus said, well, if they, if they repent, then you forgive them. And he said, well, how many times are we supposed to forgive them? Is it seven times? Now, Peter's seven is actually far more generous than, than the teaching uh, of the Jewish rabbis of the time who uh, said three, three was the number of times that you had to forgive somebody. But it was still much less generous than Jesus' 77. And of course, Jesus' point that he's making is not that on the 78th time you get to kick somebody out of your life for good, but that it's, you don't keep count of forgiving one another. There isn't a limit on our forgiveness. And to make his point about forgiveness, Jesus launches into this parable about the un, unmerciful servant. And there's a few things to note to understand that it's a bit different from uh, the world that we live in in this story, that the servant's debt, to start with. The servant owed 10,000 talents. Now, the talent is the highest form of currency in the ancient world, in the Roman world during that time. Um, And 10,000 is the largest number that, that Greek had a word for. Uh, You know, they had a word for it in the ancient languages that were used in this time. So Jesus' point is basically just, the biggest number possible, that's what this guy owed. This guy owed a $100 trillion. And when you realise that, you know, the bit where he gets on his knees and says, just give me more time, I'll pay it all back. No, he won't. Nobody could pay that back. It's more than anybody could ever repay. His offer to repay is not realistic. But the king doesn't accept his offer to repay him. Instead, he, he's moved to cancel the debt entirely, to forgive the debt. And now, of course, he goes out from there and he gets into the quarrel with the other servant that owes him money. The other servant owes him a 100 denarii. Now, one, was, was, uh, one denarius is what a, a labourer would earn for one day's work. Uh, so a uh, hundred denarii is a hundred days' work. It's not a small amount of money, but it's nothing compared to 10,000 talents. And, of course, the way the story goes, the, uh, the one who has been forgiven refuses to forgive his fellow servant's debt and instead has him thrown into jail and as a result, the king hears about it and he uncancels the man's debt and he is is thrown into prison to repay the debt, which of course he will never be able to repay. Now, I'm not sure if you see it yet, but this parable is the answer to the relationship between God's forgiveness and ours. It comes down to the order. Because the order of the things happening is important. The servant comes before God with a debt that they can never repay, offers to pay, but God, the King, forgives his debt entirely by grace. God doesn't say to the servant when he comes before him, I tell you what, if you cancel all the debts that everybody owes you, then I will cancel the debt that you owe me. That's not what happens. He says, he, he sees his, this, the servant's pleas before him, and he says, Okay, I'll, I'll forgive your debt entirely by grace. And he forgives him with a forgiveness that should be transformational, a forgiveness that should be life-changing, to be forgiven something, a debt that immense. And of course, the picture that Jesus is using here in this parable, God is the king, and the debt is, of course, not money. The debt is sin. The debt is the fact that every single person on this earth has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we compare ourselves to others, it's very easy to say, well, hey, my debt's a lot smaller than other people's. You know, I haven't caused God nearly as much trouble as some of these other people out here. I mean, look at them. But but when we look at God, suddenly we realise, when we look at Jesus, when we look at God's word, suddenly we start to realise our debt is much bigger than we first thought. And if we don't believe that, if we think, actually, I really haven't done anything that dreadful. Think about the cost that the king incurred to forgive our debt. You know, if in, in the parable of the king forgives the debt, that's a whole bunch of money that he doesn't have. That's a cost to him. But the parable, you know, each parable is designed to illustrate one point that Jesus is making. It doesn't, no, no one parable is really the whole gospel in and of itself. Because what this parable doesn't point us to is just what it would cost. To forgive the servant's debt, the cost of our sin that Jesus for that God forgave was the death of His only Son on the cross. For the wages of sin is death. The only way that sin could be paid for, the only way that sin could be forgiven, was death. And the death that was deserved was our death for our sins and separation from God for all of eternity. But Jesus took the punishment on himself, on the cross. He died in our place. He took that separation from God upon himself, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's hard to then argue, when that was the cost of our forgiveness, that our sin, that our debt wasn't that bad. God forgives. And the king forgives the servant at this great cost to himself and the servant spurns that forgiveness. Now it's true right from the start. We are not saved by works. And yet, Paul writes in his letters about the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus says, by their fruit you will know them. By by the acts of their lives you'll know whether people are Christians or not. How how can it be that we're not saved by works, but works are so important in, in so much of what's written about in the Bible? Again, it's about the order that things happen in. We are not Um, we're not saved by works. We don't earn salvation from God by doing good works or we don't earn salvation from God by forgiving others. But having been saved, if God has first saved us entirely by grace with no merit of our own, Having been saved, Jesus expects that our lives will be different on the other side of that immense forgiveness. Having been saved, having realized the enormity of our sin and the great cost of forgiveness should make a difference in our lives. It should bring about good works. It should bring about uh, the ability to forgive one another. And you see how it's a subtle difference, but it's also kind of a huge difference. When things are in the right order, the motivation is completely different. If works comes before salvation, then the motivation for my works is, in, I work so that God might love me. I work so that God might save me. I work so that uh, I might earn my way into heaven that I might earn his forgiveness but if salvation comes first then my motivation to do any good works is the gratitude that I have to God that my sin has been erased my my, my good works are my response to God's amazing love for me and so It might be a subtle difference to talk about the order of salvation and grace and works, but it's a hugely important one because it makes all the difference in here. Christians should be able to forgive sins against us. Uh, And if not, it suggests something is badly wrong. I don't mean to then say it's easy for us to forgive. Sometimes forgiveness can be very hard. But all we need to do is reflect on the extent that we have been forgiven. And that hard forgiveness does become a little bit easier. And sometimes we do need to be reminded of the extent of our sin uh, when forgiveness is hard. Sometimes, sometimes that does come from an attitude of minimising my own sin and thinking, oh, I haven't done anything that bad compared to what this person has done to me. Maybe not, but it cost Jesus his life on the cross for your sins to be forgiven. And I want to close the sermon this morning on uh, the final point. And it's a point that is very important to talk about when we we look at forgiveness. To talk about what forgiveness might actually look like in certain cases, in certain circumstances. Uh, Because sometimes teaching on forgiveness can be even slightly dangerous if we don't... uh, talk about exactly what forgiveness might look like in certain cases is forgiveness the same in every case is forgiveness the same when it comes to somebody who doesn't repent of their sin against you as opposed to somebody who does now i think that that verse I, or that part of Matthew chapter 18 i read out to you before suggests There is a difference in the way forgiveness will play out when someone is unrepentant compared to where somebody is repentant. At the end of that whole process of what you do if someone sinned against you within the church, Jesus says, if they still won't repent of their sin, treat them like you would a sinner or a tax collector. At the end of that process, there's no reconciliation in the relationship where the person has not repented. But there can still be a level of forgiveness within that. Normally the hope is that forgiveness will lead to reconciliation. In this case, it might not. But we read about in in, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is uh, talking about a a difficult case in the church where uh, somebody is having intimate relations with somebody that they shouldn't be. And um, we've got children present, so I'll leave it at that. But, um, and this person is refusing to repent of that. And Paul says to them, you need to boot this guy out of the church. But his reason for doing that is that this person might see the error of their ways and receive forgiveness. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's, you know, and you could spend a whole lot of time unpacking the way that Paul has, has expressed that particular point, but the point is that he there's punishment for this guy, but Paul still wants him to be saved, and he sees this as a step towards that. Um, so there's... There's that level of forgiveness in that you refuse to hate the other person. Jesus famously called us to love even our enemies and uh, pray for those who persecute us. And I think that's a lot of what it looks like to forgive somebody that is unrepentant. But there's another very hard question that I think we need to talk about when it comes to talking about forgiveness. Now, what would forgiveness look like for somebody like Tamara? Now, Tamara is uh, a married woman and she loves her husband and she and her husband have a good, good relationship more often than not. But sometimes Tamara's husband goes out with his mates and he has a little bit too much to drink. And sometimes when Tamara's husband gets home having had a bit too much to drink, suddenly things go very wrong at home. And again, children are present, but um, sometimes when this happens, Tamara is very unsafe in her home. Sometimes there are bruises and cuts. I think we can all see you know, the case I'm putting out for us here. And then every time it comes to a head, you know, afterwards there's lots of apology, there's lots of, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that will never happen again. What does forgiveness look like for Tamara? This is a question that I think churches need to wrestle with because sometimes we've given the counsel that, that forgiveness means always staying and sometimes that advice has ended disastrously. Does Tamra need to forgive her abuser? And does Tamra need to stay with him? Now, I think the, the biblical answer to that question is forgive, yes, but stay, probably not. I think... Oh, I, I do want to say at this point, if anybody in the church is a Tamra or knows a Tamra, please come and talk to us. You will be listened to. You will be believed. But... Um, when we're talking about what forgiveness looks like for Tamra, it's not easy to just like. There's no Bible verse that says, um, you know, here is what forgiveness looks like in a dangerous situation. Here is what forgiveness looks like in an abusive situation. But I firmly believe forgiveness does not necessarily mean removing all the consequences of somebody's action. And my basis for saying that is that we see from Matthew 18 that our forgiveness of others is modelled on God's forgiveness of, of us, God's forgiveness of people. And God forgives perfectly for anybody who repents, but he doesn't always spare us from the consequences of our sins and our bad choices. God forgave Moses. Moses will be in heaven. But he didn't get to enter the promised land because of his sin. There was was a consequence for his actions. God forgave David. David will be in heaven. But after his sin with Bathsheba, he lost uh, the son the first son that he had with Bathsheba. And in the New Testament, Paul tells us that we can endure hardship as discipline because God disciplines those he loves. He forgives us. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. But he doesn't spare us from every consequence that our sins and our, our you know, bad decisions can cause for us. When abuse occurs within a marriage, it is such a... Well, and not just a marriage, within like, you know, any, any kind of romantic or otherwise relationship. When abuse occurs, it is such a violation of what that relationship is supposed to be. And it's such a violation of the vows in the case of marriage that a husband has made. The husband, we read in Ephesians chapter 5, which I don't have teed up, but the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and lay down his life for her. He is to protect, not abuse, So, in the case of a Atamra, there are consequences. the consequences of the sin that has taken place are such that the covenant that they've made to one another is broken. The promises that have been made, that the covenant of marriage is based upon, have been broken. Now, I don't know if I would say that there can never be any chance of reconciliation in a case like that. But I would be very wary. As all the the data shows us, abusers can be very repentant until they abuse again. It's an area we need to be very careful in. Likewise... The Bible tells us we're not to have civil lawsuits among believers. But if an actual crime has happened, the consequence of somebody's actions might demand that it goes through the criminal court process. I think it is entirely possible for a Christian to both forgive and still go through that process. And I think if somebody, if the sinner is truly repentant, I think they would accept that that is the consequence of their actions. With that said though, what does forgiveness look like for a Tamra? For somebody in that situation where the relationship might not be able to be reconciled to what it was before. Forgiveness looks like, again, letting go of hate and bitterness. It looks like you know, there can't be any revenge, any thought of revenge. Vengeance is God's. When people try to do revenge, we, we always overdo it, and then the next person will overdo it back, to, and it just, it just snowballs out of control. God lets us say, look, I'm in charge of justice. I'll sort out vengeance. I'll sort out justice. Now I don't imagine that comes easily. There, I think in a lot of cases where you're dealing with a sin like this, there might be a process of praying with God to help to let go of hatred and bitterness. You don't have to be perfect at these things overnight. I think forgiveness in this case might look like being able to pray for those who've persecuted us. If you can pray good things for that for the person who has wronged you, you can pray that you know they, they get their life sorted out. if you can pray that um, you know if they're in a case where well you, know, you can pray that they, they do find the Lord and that they do realise you know, and, and um, confess their sins and be forgiven, if we can pray good things for those who have persecuted us. I think that's part of what forgiveness looks like, again, in a situation where a relationship can't be reconciled. God has forgiven us so much. The price of our forgiveness is so great. Now, what we may have to forgive is not small. Just like the servant's debt, the hundred denarii, a hundred days' wages, that's not small. Jesus isn't saying, look, you know, the things you have to forgive are nothing. But he is saying to look to what God has forgiven you. And look at the incredible cost of that forgiveness. If we've been changed by an encounter with the amazing grace of God who forgived our debt that we could never repay, the way we respond to that is to let our gratitude encourage us to show that grace to others, even and most especially when it's hard. And in being a church family, when forgiveness is hard, that's where coming alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ, coming to the people in your Bible study group, people that you trust, and asking them to help you in that part, to pray for you, to pray with you when forgiveness is hard is a part of what the church is here for, to encourage one another. But let us be encouraged by the incredible riches of God's grace to us. To When we didn't deserve it, to be gracious to others, even when they don't deserve it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the extraordinary depths of your grace and your forgiveness to us. Our debt, like the 10,000 talents of gold, is something that we could never repay. And we see the enormity of our debt when we see the price that was paid to forgive our sins to forgive our debt. Lord, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, All these verses, all these commands, forgive like God has forgiven you, they sound so good and so pleasant and so nice, right until we actually have to do them where we've been wronged and it's hard. And we pray that you might just grow your grace in us, that we might, by your spirit, be able to forgive others, that we might be able to show your the incredible grace of God to the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.